All right, so we're going to be continuing our Advent series uh, this coming Sunday in a message that we're calling uh, For the Glory of God, an Advent series on God's eternal plan. And this week is week three, part three, Redemption Through the Cross. Uh, So Schindler's List is a very powerful movie about Nazi Germany, uh, starring Liam Neeson as Oscar Schindler. Uh, And Schindler was a German businessman, and in 1936, he joined uh, an organization called Abwehr, which was the German military intelligence agency uh, during Nazi Germany. Uh, But somewhere along the way, he had a major change of heart. Uh, And in 1939, he bought uh, a factory, and he employed Jews at that factory. And by its peak in 1944, uh, he employed over 1,700 people at his factories, and over 1,000 of them were Jews. And when the Nazis were deporting the Jews, uh, taking them away uh, in trainloads to the concentration camps where they faced near certain death, uh, Schindler used his uh, connections with the SS through Abwehr uh, to bribe these SS officials, saying, I need these workers, you can't take them from me, and he paid them money. Uh, and in that way was able to save uh, many of his employees. And by the end of the war, uh, Schindler had spent uh, his entire fortune uh, trying to save uh, the Jews. And if you saw the movie, you, you'll remember uh, Liam Neeson as Schindler running around, uh, you know, coming up with the very last bits of his personal property, uh, trying to do whatever he could to save just one more Jew as they were being taken away uh, to the concentration camps. And so he was redeeming uh, the Jews from death at the concentration camps. Now the word redeem means to buy back, and, and we most often think of redemption or, or to redeem in the, concept or the, the context of buying slaves back uh, from their slavery, uh, purchasing a slave's freedom. And one of the most famous uh, slaves who was purchased back from uh, slavery was actually found in the Bible, uh, Onesimus in the book of Philemon. Uh, If you remember the story, Onesimus uh, was a slave in Philemon's household, and he escaped, and he ran away uh, to Rome, where he bumped into, of all people, Paul. And uh, very hard to run into Paul and not be converted. And Onesimus, he was converted. Uh, And then uh, uh, Paul wrote back uh, this letter uh, to Philemon, uh, and he sent Onesimus back with the letter uh, and said to uh, Philemon, uh, if he owes anything, uh, I will pay it back to you. Uh, Receive him, not as a slave, but as a brother. And so uh, Paul bought Onesimus back from the penalty of escaping slavery, which was most likely death. Now, as Adam and Eve's children, we too need redemption because our legacy is sin. Their legacy to us is sin. Uh, God holds us responsible for their sin because we would have done what they did in their place and because we are their physical descendants. So in a sense, we were with them in the sense that we were in their bodies. But uh, whether, no matter what your view on that happens to be, you don't have to worry about that because you're guilty enough of your own sin uh, and I am of mine that we also need redemption. So we need to be bought back from the penalty of sin or we will spend eternity apart from God. So let's talk about this. Let's talk about our need for, for redemption. Uh, during this Advent season, we've talked about this grand narrative of, of God's story, the overarching theme that goes from beginning to end of God's story. Uh, and we saw, or we've talked about, 
uh, how God's story, uh, every story that's ever been told, mimics God's story about how uh, the story unfolds. We have this grand narrative uh, which begins with uh, exposition, and then that's when the author introduces the main characters and themes in the story. So God introduced himself uh, as a main player, and he uh, and he. Uh, talked through creation, the setting for the story, and placed Adam and Eve uh, in the garden. So that's the first part. Then the second uh, part of the story, any good story, is this inciting incident that leads to rising conflict. And we talked about that last week when we talked about the fall. A serp, the ser Satan, in the form of a serpent, entered the garden, tempted Adam and Eve. Uh, they sinned, uh, and sin and death entered into the world. Uh, and so from there on, we just see continued rising conflict after the inciting incident. So God pronounced judgment uh, on the serpent, the woman and the man. The serpent would crawl on its belly. The woman would have pain in childbirth and conflict with her husband. The man would have difficulty in making the ground produce food. There would be con conflict among people everywhere. And ultimately, they would die physically as a result of sin entering the world. Uh, so much peace thrown away by rejecting God's authority and God's power and his provision. So this sin uh, separates us from God. Uh, and unless we are redeemed, we are bound for eternity in hell. So we need redemption. And we see this legacy of sin traced throughout the entire Old Testament. Uh, right after chapter 3 in chapter 4, Cain kills Abel. And then uh, the, the human race becomes so wicked that God decides that he's going to destroy the whole earth, saving only Noah and his family in Genesis chapters 6 through 9. Uh, but it wasn't soon or too long after they got off the ark before uh, they sinned again and the human race multiplied and grew and sin multiplied and grew until uh, the time of the pa Tower of Babel where these men all rose up and said, we're going to build this tower to the heavens and we're going to make a great name for ourselves. And so God came and confused their languages, uh, separated them from each other uh, so that they could not be successful in their project. Uh, but these different people groups that God created by confusing their language creates different peoples, different races, uh, different languages. And whenever people have differences with each other, well, they fight for dominance. And so you have more conflict and more sin. But God chose one man from among these people, Abraham from the land of Ur, to be the leader of a people that God would choose for himself uh, to bless, and then for that people to bless the world through. And these are the Israelites. And later, God gave these Israelites the law of Moses, but they couldn't keep it. And so their sin continued, and their enemies grew. And so the Old Testament is the story. When we look at it, it's the story of God's chosen people, the Israelites, in conflict with God because they couldn't keep the law, in conflict with each other, which is how they end up, ended up dividing into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And they're in conflict with their enemies, which resulted in them being conquered by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. Their temple was burned to the ground and they served their enemies as slaves. And all of this can be traced back to the inciting incident, the sin that happened in the Garden of Eden, because man now has a sin nature. And so this inciting incident leads to rising conflict over the centuries. And the Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi. In the last chapter of the book of Malachi, God promised to send a messenger who would prepare the way for this coming Messiah, just like Isaiah had prophesied hundreds of years before. 
And then God's prophets were silent for 400 years. And during that time, the Jews who had been captive to the Persians had been allowed to go back to their land in Israel. And that only lasted a little while before they were conquered then by the Greeks and then by the Romans. And as the New Testament begins, they are oppressed. Uh, they are without hope. Uh, Israel and mankind desperately needed a redeemer. And here we come into the New Testament. By the time John the Baptist comes on the scene, four more centuries have passed since the book of Malachi has closed. Think about that, four centuries. We think Old Testament times, you know, four centuries is like a day, right? This is like the Mayflower to us, 1620, uh, 400 years ago. That's a long, long time ago for the people to be waiting for their promised Messiah. And John then appeared just as promised by Malachi and Isaiah. Uh, he, he proclaimed, heralded this coming Messiah. And now here comes Jesus, who lived in th for you know, 30 years in relative obscurity, working in his father's carpentry shop. Uh, but then when his public ministry began, Jesus turned the world upside down with this teaching that the Jewish, Jewish establishment considered radical and that threatened the Roman Empire. And so we would ask ourselves, you know, why did Jesus do this? Why did he come out and act the way he did? Why didn't he just keep quiet? Why did he call out the sins of the Pharisees and the Sadducees every chance he got? Uh, why did he heal on the Sabbath, contradict their traditions, embarrass them in public, overturn the tables of the money changers? And he just always seemed to be looking for trouble almost. It almost seems, when you think about it, like he was trying to get himself crucified. And in a sense, he was, because it was only through the cross that he could redeem mankind. Why else, uh, when the Jews would not convict him or could not convict him of a crime at his trial, did he say the magic words that he knew would convict himself? They demanded to know if he was the Christ, and he said that he was. And to clinch it, he calls down this prophecy from Daniel chapter 7, uh, saying, I am, and nevertheless I tell you, uh, you will see me, the Son of Man, sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And uh, when Jesus said that, he knew that they were going to perceive that as blasphemy, even though it was true. And he knew that the penalty for blasphemy was death. So that's why he convicted himself. And then why else when he was standing before Pilate and Pilate questioned him concerning his identity, did he admit to being a king? That would be a direct threat to Rome. And then he refused to defend himself until Pilate claimed to have authority over him. And it was only then that, that Jesus said, you would have no authority at all unless my father in heaven gave it to you. Pilate wanted to release Jesus, but Jesus did nothing to help himself. He could have used words to help himself. He could have called on supernatural powers to help himself, uh, but Jesus remained silent. Why didn't he save himself? It's because he came to accomplish the redemption of the world. So today we're talking about the third part of God's story, and this is the climax, redemption of mankind at the cross. Now, our theme this week, as we heard earlier, was joy. And joy intersects perfectly with the theme of Jesus Christ's redemption of us. We were slaves to sin, condemned to death under the penalty of sin. 
Would we remain that way? Would evil triumph over good or would good prevail? This is the climax of any good story when we see whether good triumphs over evil or whether evil triumphs over good. And so the, the climax began in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus praying, sweating drops of blood, knowing what was ahead of him and asking God if there was any other way. Uh, and when there was no other way, Jesus there at the moment of decision decides I am going to the cross. I am going to the cross. And that's the climax of the story when he makes that decision. He willingly goes to the cross to defeat evil and redeem mankind. And he bought us back from the penalty of sin at the cross. And so he's taken us out of this condemned condition that we were in, and he brings us into this new relationship with God where we are justified. We stand before God justified and righteous and when we think about the brutal death that Jesus suffered on the cross, it should cause us deep grief because we know that it's our sin that put him there. But on the other hand, Jesus was born for this. This is the reason that he came. And it should give us exceeding joy that Jesus accomplished his mission because he bought us all back. And if he hadn't done that, we would still remain in this condemned state. And so that's why redemption and joy intersect so well. So we understand that he was born to die. Let's talk about that. Uh, the passage that was read earlier, uh, Matthew 1, 18 to 21, talks about the birth of Jesus, the Messiah. And at the end of this passage, which is the part I want to focus on, it says, verse 21, she'll give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, every Christmas, whenever we hear the, the song, Mary, Did You Know, right, where we are always uh, thinking about how much did Mary know? What, what could Mary have understood? How much could Jesus have understood, or I'm sorry, Joseph have understood about this child who was about to be born to them? You'll remember that Mary had already been visited by the angel Gabriel uh, at, the at the time Gabriel comes and says, you will bear this child. Mary says, how can this be? Gabriel says, you'll be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. But remember, Joseph and Mary were engaged to be married at this point, so she probably had some explaining to do to Joseph, right? Uh, and so graciously, the angel comes to, Matthew, or to, uh, to Joseph later on, and it's reported here in Matthew chapter 1. After Joseph already knew that Mary was pregnant and, and was planning to divorce her, an angel now comes and tells him that this child is born of the Holy Spirit, and you put his name, make his name Jesus, which is Yeshua in Hebrew, which means Savior. And so when Joseph woke up from this dream, uh, Joseph did all that the angel said. Now, I imagine uh, once Joseph came to grips with the fact that, that Mary had not been unfaithful, that this child actually was conceived of the Holy Spirit, uh, I just imagine some of the conversations that took place between Joseph and Mary as they're waiting for the birth of this son. Uh, how could he be a savior? Uh, how could he save the people from their sins? And I wonder if they considered the story of Adam and Eve, sin entering the world and God having to slay an animal to give skins to serve as protection and cover for them, uh, to atone for their sins in a sense, because blood is always required to atone for sin. 
Did they understand that it was going to require uh, blood to, to atone for the sin? Did they understand the law of Moses? Did they think about that? This, the sacrificial system that was in place where uh, God allowed the Israels, uh, Israelites to bring animals to be sacrificed by the priests to atone for their sins. Did they understand that it would be their own son Jesus who would have to be this lamb slain since the beginning, uh, since the creation of the world, whose blood would be required to save the people from their sins? Eight days later, after the birth, they received a strong prophecy from Simeon. Do you remember this in Luke chapter 2 where uh, they bring Jesus to the temple to be circumcised and Simeon, who had been waiting for the coming Messiah, takes this child in his arms and says, this child is destined to be the cause of the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign to be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Two, what does that mean? Uh, I wonder if she thought about the fact that her soul would be pierced was because something was going to happen to Jesus as well. I wonder if she thought about Zechariah's prophecy, they will look on him whom they have pierced, or Isaiah's prophecy about the man of sorrows who was uh, born to die, for, to, to be uh, beaten for our transgressions, and, and to take the penalty of sin that we so deserve, being crushed for our iniquities. Well, whether they understood all this or not, or how much of it they could possibly have understood, we understand on this side of the cross that Jesus' whole purpose in coming into the world was to die for the sin of the world. And that's why when John the Baptist saw him for the first time, he said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, when John said those words, Jesus had not yet taken away the sin of the world, right? That was a prophecy of what was to come. Jesus still had to live a sinless life, and he still had to die on a Roman cross to take away the sin of the world. And so this, the, the, the uh, shedding of blood is always required to atone for sin. So Jesus was born to die. And not only that, it was his joy to die, to fulfill his purpose. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, verse one is about our response to all of these things. Verse two is about Jesus and his finished work, and that's what I wanna focus on. You know, when I was young uh, and I used to run marathons, uh, there was nothing more exciting to me about standing on that starting line like five minutes before the race, and there, there's just an excitement, there's a tension in the air as you're waiting for the starting gun uh, to go off and you're about to embark on this great uh, race to try and run these 26 miles. And, uh, there was a lot of tension in the air. I knew that the next four hours were going to be absolutely brutal, but I also knew that if I could make it, they would hang a finisher's medal around my neck uh, commemorating this accomplishment. And so that's what the excitement, that's what the buzz was all about, because it was going to be something that I would accomplish that they could never take away. It could never be taken away. And so the joy was not in the running. I'm sure most of you understand that, especially in the second half when you come to the, the last 13 miles, uh, really brutal. Uh, but the joy is finishing 
and the sense of accomplishment that it brought. Now, when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he didn't have anything uh, good to look forward to over the next 24 hours. Those next 24 hours are going to be absolutely excruciating. And he sweat drops of blood in the garden, agonizing over what he knew was coming. And when the Romans came to arrest him, and when Peter cut off one of the servant's ears, Jesus told him to put his sword away. He didn't need Peter's weak attempt uh, to try to save him from, from his purpose. He could have called down 12 legions of angels, as he said, uh, to rescue him from what was coming. But Jesus knew that he had to go through it. Remember when uh, Jesus was uh, tempted by Satan in the wilderness, at the very beginning of his ministry, uh, Jesus had another chance uh, to, to get around the cross. Uh, Satan tempted him, uh, said to him in Matthew chapter 4, 9, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you will just bow down to me. Satan was trying to convince Jesus to, to receive glory without the suffering, to, to have his kingdom without going through what was necessary to attain it. And if I were in Jesus' shoes, I may have gone along with Satan's plan, uh, but thank God Jesus didn't. Jesus knew that the, the joy that comes uh, with glory uh, is through suffering, not around suffering. And that's why he said, go Satan. It is written, you shall worship the Lord God and serve him only. So why did Jesus, having uh, the choice to avoid the cross, willingly go to it? He did it for the joy set before him. And I can think of at least three ways that there was joy set before him. The joy was not in the cross itself, but what the cross would fulfill. And so the first thing I think of is the joy of inheriting all that was his. Uh, this joy that was set before him, he's, he's, he's thinking, contemplating the joy that's before him. This plan was made since the beginning of time, uh, and now he's standing there at the moment of decision, and for the joy set before him, he goes to the cross. And so he's going to, again, inherit all that was his. Uh, before Jesus came to the earth, he lived in perfect harmony with the other members of the Trinity, the Father and the Holy Spirit. And when he came to the earth, he gave up uh, that perfect relationship with them in the heavens uh, to come, uh, to become a man uh, and be subject to human frailties, human infirmities. Uh, not that he ever stopped being God for one second, but he set aside some of his divine privileges and prerogatives to become a man while he lived. And as a man, he's able to suffer pain and thirst and hunger, weariness, and worst of all, death. And to gain back all that he had, to inherit it again, he had to complete his mission to die on the cross to redeem the human race. In, in, uh, as he was going uh, to the garden, and in the garden, he prayed this, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory I had before the world was. And so he's thinking, uh, looking forward to re-inheriting all that he had. And having done it now, Jesus sits at the right hand of his Father in, and inheriting all that he gave up when he became a man. So the joy of inheriting all that was his is part of the joy that was set before him. Obedience to the Father is more of the joy that was set before him. It gave Jesus great joy to obey the Father. And we've already talked about the reason for Jesus' life. He was born to die, a plan set in eternity past, and it just waited for Jesus to complete it. So he was born to die in obedience with the Father's plan. And that's why when Jesus walked the earth, 
he said things like this, John 14, 31, that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. So obedience to the Father. John 12, 49, for I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment what to say and what to speak. So this obedience to the Father, it pleased the Father, and it pleased Jesus to, to obey the Father, and it brought both him and the Father glory. So the joy of inheriting all that was his, the joy of obedience to the Father, and finally, the, the joy of purchasing our salvation. Do you know that the joy set before him is us? We are the joy set before him. That's, that's pretty staggering to think about. Uh, in Psalm chapter 2, uh, God said to, the, to his Messiah, I will give you the nations as an inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. And in John chapter 6, Jesus said, All the Father who gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. That's us. That's you and me. We are the joy set before him. If Jesus had not gone to the cross, he would not have lost all that the Father had given him because he was required to die to redeem us from the penalty of sin. So uh, the joy that existed for him, the joy of inheriting all that he had, the joy of obedience to the Father, and the joy of redeeming us. He died a criminal's death. A sword did pierce Mary's own heart that day. The disciples were crushed as uh, this hope, everything that they had put their hope in, uh, they thought had been dashed on that day. But that was not the end of the story. Three days later, Jesus rises from the dead and he appeared to his apostles over a period of 40 days, bringing them great joy, just as he promised in John 16, 22. Before he died, he said, you have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one, no one will take your joy away from you. And so our theme of joy again, uh, this joy that these apostles must have experienced, uh, having seen the risen Christ, how encouraging, how amazing that must have been. And then after 40 days, he ascended to heaven and he sits at his father's side. And Jesus' resurrection proves that he has the power over death. If he could be raised, then we can be raised as well. And it proves that God was satisfied with Jesus' payment for our sins on the cross, or else God would not have raised him. And he sat down at the right hand of his father, which indicates completed work. A priest in the Old Testament never sat down. There was always more sacrificing to be done. But Jesus' work is done. Sin is defeated. It is atoned for. We are redeemed. And we've had conflict ever since Genesis chapter 3. How can man in his sinful condition ever be reconciled to God? Well, the climax of the story happened at the cross. Jesus triumphed over Satan. He purchased our souls and all who are his will be with him someday. Now, that's the climax of the story. That doesn't mean that we don't still have conflict in the world today, right? Just look around. It's plain that there is conflict everywhere. But we know that Satan and sin and death have already been defeated. And all that is left, all that is left is for us to choose sides. Are we going to follow Satan? Are we going to follow Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of our souls? 
And there's a battle raging right now in the world between the, the, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And, and we may be tempted by looking around to think that the seed of the serpent, uh, Satan's people, are prevailing. But that's not happening. Jesus has already won the battle. The battle is already over. Why Jesus hasn't returned and why he continues to allow Satan to have some dominion over this world for a time is part of the mystery of God. God's timing is perfect. Uh, But we know that the victory is won and all that is left is for Jesus to come again, vanquish his enemies once and for all, and restore the world. So at Christmas, we celebrate that Christ came into the world. But Christmas without the cross leaves humanity unredeemed. He came to die, and for the joy set before him, he did die, and he rose again. He sits at the right hand of the Father where he remains while we wait expectantly for his second coming. And this is the hope of Christmas and the source of our joy. So let's talk about some applications. Redemption. Redemption means that we can live without fear. Think about all the benefits of redemption. We've been going through these, particularly when we were in the middle chapters of Romans, we talked about all the many benefits of redemption, uh, redemption through Jesus' blood. We have eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, righteousness, freedom from the curse of the law, adoption into God's family, deliverance from sin's power and bondage, peace with God, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. All of these things are ours, uh, objectively, but then we know that we have these things and it changes the way we live. To be redeemed means to be forgiven, to be holy, justified, free, adopted, reconciled. All of these amazing things because of what Jesus did on the cross. So, let me ask you a question. What do we have to be afraid of? What do we have to be afraid of? I don't hear anything. We don't have anything to be afraid of, do we? We have nothing to be afraid of. You know, uh, I was talking about Schindler's List earlier. The people on Schindler's List were not assured of safety, even though he bought them for money. They could have been captured or killed at any moment. There was nothing Schindler could do to guarantee their safety. He could buy uh, them out of the village they were in or maybe get them on a train, but that didn't mean that they were going to ultimately escape the SS and the concentration camps. But Jesus can assure our safety. Our name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and nothing can change that. Schindler gave his money. Jesus gave his blood, and that buys us for all time. And so uh, Satan is looking at us, right? He wants us on his list of people who are condemned, but Jesus has bought us once and for all, eternally, eternally so that we, are, we know that we are on uh, his list, written in the Lamb's book of life. So there is nothing that you can do, and there's nothing that can happen to you that can change that. So let's not focus on everything that's happening in the world, the uncertainty with the virus, the uncertainty of what may happen in our country. We have no reason to fear if we focus on the eternal rather than on the earthly. So don't get distracted by the events of the world. Plagues come and go. Governments rise and fall. But the work of Jesus Christ on the cross is forever. And it means eternity for all who believe. So redemption means that we can live without fear, And redemption is the source of all joy. 
Joy is different from happiness. I know you know that. Uh, joy uh, comes from this knowledge deep in your heart uh, and, and soul that God will never fail you because you know that God's promises are true and that your destination is heaven. And, and you can have joy at all times, even though you may not be happy at all times. And you can have joy even if in bad times if you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, well, Christmas time is as good a time as any to say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I need to be redeemed. Lord, I place my trust and faith in you. Please save me from my sins. For those of you, most of you who are believers, uh, we just give thanks and, and we are just so joyful because uh, we know that life has its hardships, but they are nothing so minor compared to the surpassing glory that awaits us in heaven. So today, as we consider joy and we consider redemption, we thank God, praise the Lord, that we are a blood-bought member of God's eternal family. Uh, the song, O Holy Night, has a fitting line uh, that is just appropriate for our times. The thrill of hope a weary world rejoices, right? So you have this thrill of hope on the one hand, this joy that we have, even though we're weary. So we're all weary to a degree, but we have this eternal hope and this joy within us because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. And the joy of our redemption is what Christmas is all about. Amen, brothers and sisters? Amen. Amen. Lord God, we can just never get over the cross. We can never stop marveling at what you have achieved, that you would willingly do that for us, Lord. Every day when we think about it, we, we, just, can't, we just can't possibly cope with, with what it, all that it means, Lord, but we are so grateful, so thankful to you, Lord, that you did it, uh, that in the garden, at the moment when you could have decided either way, that you went to the cross for us, Lord, and we thank you for all that it means for us, uh, mostly for eternity with you. And we long to see your face, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.